Jared Porter's career as a GM is over. These stories will never make sense to me. And they only get more disturbing each time we hear them. You're listening to Fun Times in Flushing, a positive podcast about the New York Mets. I am Michael Smith, here to talk about Mets baseball with you every week, even during the offseason. On today's show, I'll be joined by Tim Britton of The Athletic to discuss the story surrounding Jared Porter, as well as some moves the Mets made this offseason or didn't make. Plus, I'll be breaking down Dom Smith's 2020 season. That theme comes from Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your podcast themes at kylespodcastthemes at gmail.com. If you want to find any links discussed in today's show or to learn more about the show, go to funflushing.com slash 20. Wasn't that long ago that Mets fans envisioned Dominic Smith as their first baseman for many years to come. He was just 22 years old when he came up in 2017. We were told he was a doubles machine, could hit to all fields, and would make a significant impact. He hit nine homers from August 11th on that year, but not much else. He ended up having an incident where he overslept in spring training the following season. There were questions about his conditioning, fair or unfair, and his future suddenly seemed very much in doubt. He played well when healthy in 2019, a slimmed-down version of himself, which is why the Mets moved him out to left field, because first baseman, because first base had become occupied by a record-breaking rookie named Pete. Then 2020 came, and man did Dom flip a switch. 21 doubles to go with 10 homers, a 993 OPS in 50 games. Another development in 2020 was the National League DH. Should that stick, it opens up a spot for Dom to make an impact on this team. He is just not a left fielder. He's a first baseman, and he's a better one than Alonzo. So if Pete can fill that DH spot, Dom slides back in to his natural position, and the Mets have two big hitters from both sides of the plate in their lineup. I really feel that Dom can take another step forward in 2021. To do it in 50 games like he did in 2020 is great, and he was a big part of that Mets offense. But if he can sustain that for a full season, go 20, 25 homers, and maybe 40 doubles, like was predicted when he came up, he brings a lot to this lineup. I feel like a broken record, though. The Mets might have more to gain than any National League team from having a designated hitter. Aside from Nelson Cruz and Marcelo Zuna, Dom might have more to gain than any player in the league. I don't know why the league is dragging their feet on this. You know, I'm going to talk about it with Tim in a little bit. But they need to make a decision. It's not fair. Nelson Cruz and Marcelo Zuna might have jobs already. If there were 30 teams fighting for their services instead of 15 or you know for for Cruz at least Ozuna is a little bit better of a fielder but he's most likely going to be a DH Dom might be traded if there's no DH and there's only room for either him or Pete it might be affecting Jackie Bradley Jr. you know the Mets might be more in on Jackie Bradley Jr. if they know that there's going to be a DH a lot of dominoes will fall when the DH gets decided one way or another it just it's it's crazy to me that they just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and dragging their feet on this. They have to make a decision. And for Dom, I said it. He, he should be a 40 double guy. 
He hits the ball hard. He hits it to all fields. He's an impressive, impressive hitter. And the turnaround that he's made, you know, to be such a young kid, drafted out of high school, be 18 years old. He talked about it. If you go back on SNY's Facebook or I think it might even be on their YouTube, he did the cookie club during the early parts of the shutdown when they weren't playing. Dom and J.D. Davis did the cookie club on SNY's social media pages with Steve Gelbs. They had David Wright on. He was 18, 19 years old playing with David Wright in those rehab games that David kept playing in the minor leagues. Be easy to get a big head. Be easy to kind of fall behind, maybe lose your conditioning a little bit. Oversleep during spring training, your spot, your chance to make the big league club. Make an impression at least. And for him to have turned it around like he did. Get more serious. And still be a fun guy who has fun in the dugout and the clubhouse and is somebody that, you know, teammates love being around. There's so much to love about this guy. He's such a great presence on this team. I just love watching him play. And he's good. And he's a good fielder as well. He's a significant upgrade over Alonzo there. Well, I really, I hope this DH comes through. The Mets have the DH and they get to use it and they get to have both these guys in the lineup because I just think, like I talked about last week with Pete, funandflushing.com slash 19 if you want to hear that. I just think these two guys have so much to gain and they could really make a very positive impact if they're in those two spots. This day in Mets history, January 22nd, 2006, the Mets trade Chris Benson to Baltimore for Jorge Julio and John Main. Main had a couple of good years with the Mets after coming over in 06. He won 25 games over 2007 and 2008. But he made his mark in the postseason in 06. The Mets were the favorites to come out of the National League, but just before the playoffs started, Pedro Martinez and Orlando El Duque Hernandez got hurt, and the Mets had to turn to Main and Oliver Perez. Maine put up a good performance, pitching to a no decision in Game 1 of the Division Series. He made two starts against the Cardinals. He didn't pitch well, and he got a no decision in a Game 2 loss, but bounced back to earn a win in Game 6, going 5 and a third scoreless in a winner-go-home situation, getting the Mets to that Game 7. His best performance, though, might be lost to history. On the second-to-last day of the 07 season, with the Mets needing a win, he took a no-hitter into the eighth. With two outs, he gave up an infield single to Paul Hoover and was removed from the game. The only hit the Marlins would get that day. And that game would be so remembered so much more fondly had Tom Glavin been able to get out of the first inning the next day. But I will always have a soft spot in my heart for John Main. I'm one of those forgotten Mets that really made a big impact on the, those teams in the middle 2000s there. January 26th, 2016, the Mets re-signed Ioannis Cespedes. This is the first time they re-signed Cespedes. He had a good year. He hit 31 homers with 86 RBIs in 132 games. He made it all worth it when he came back from an injury on August 19th. He hit 340 with 5 homers and 10 RBIs. His effect on the Mets was significantly felt. He came back when they were one game under 500 and they finished the season 12 games over and hosting the wildcard game. Maybe they shouldn't have signed him again after he opted out that offseason. That contract just ended this past year. 
But there's no way to look back at that trade or the first offseason signing of Cespedes as anything but an overwhelming success. Another player I will always have a significant soft spot for. Before we get to Tim Britton, I just want to give my thoughts on this past week in Mets baseball. It was all sunshine and roses this offseason until last Monday. The Jared Porter news was shocking and upsetting, and the Mets did the right thing in firing him. I have to admit, though, I was a little disappointed in how they handled it. Still, the press conference was not Sandy Alderson at his finest. He not only named the country of the reporter, which the report went out of its way to not do, the ESPN report by Jeff Passan and Mina Kimes, but he just didn't seem comfortable, and at one point he gave Porter kind of a soft landing. When asked about if he felt Porter lied to him in this process, Sandy said he never misled us, but that they didn't understand the full scope of things until they read the report. Maybe Sandy truly feels that way, but it does seem like he must have misled them at least a little bit. Why would you defend him? Why would you give him a soft landing? Hang him out to dry. If not now, when? When, like, when, when are you going to do that? And I, I get that that's probably not in Sandy's persona to do that. But you gotta go, you gotta be a little hard on the guy, I would think. I also thought Steve Cohen should have been present for questions. This is an organizational issue. The organization messed up in hiring this guy. And you could say they should have known, they shouldn't have known. I'm not really going to get into that. The fact of the matter is they hired him and they had to fire him before the season even started. And the owner should answer for that. I realize maybe there's not much he can say. But just being there and presenting a hard line and, and owning up to what happened. This is the kind of thing I kind of thought he was going to be there for. And it was a little troubling that he wasn't there. Then there's the news that very much not as important. It's not real life troubling. But it is on the diamond and it did happen this weekend. It happened very shortly after the Jared Porter stuff. A couple days later. George Springer signing in Toronto. I think there's a chance this plays out well for the Mets over time, especially if they extend both Lindor and Mike Conforto. But man, is it tough to look at this and feel any other way than at least slightly disappointed. The Mets had needs, and for the most part so far, they filled them. But they went for the lesser catcher. They also went to the trade market, where they did not have a lot of assets to begin with. They did not sign Real Muto, and they won't. They did not sign Springer, he's off the board. Bauer's still out there and a possibility. And Ken Rosenthal is reporting that they're significantly looking into it. But I doubt that comes to fruition. I just, I, I can't see it happening. And frankly, I don't want it to happen. I've, I've, I really, at the beginning of this whole process, I was not in on Trevor Bauer. I just didn't think he would work in New York. And then I, I softened on that and I thought maybe it would. Maybe he did have a, a bit of a tougher exterior than I thought. But just the more I think about it and the more I read about some of the stuff he's done in the past on social media, he, he's, he sent his followers after people. I just don't think, I don't think there's any way that the New York media will let him up from that. And eventually that will get to him. That would get to anybody. To me, as far as the Mets are concerned with what they've done so far, I just want to know that either Conforto or Lindor is going to be here long term. I don't want to hear they'll sign them. I don't want to hear 
it was talked about a lot when no extension was announced when the Lindor trade happened. Oh, they'll sign him. Don't worry about it. They'll sign him. A lot of people thought they'd sign Springer, and they didn't. I want assurances that one of these guys is in Queens for the rest of his career, and I want it in writing. I know I used the word disappointed, and I shouldn't have, because I'm not. This has been a much better offseason than we otherwise would have had without Steve Cohen. But when we had images of multiple free agents coming to this team this offseason, and we're still not as good on paper as the Dodgers, and probably not even the Padres, the excitement for 2021 does take a little bit of a hit. And we'll talk about it with Tim. You know, he kind of laid out a little bit of a timeline for extending one of these guys, if not both of these guys, that the Mets already have in-house. And it made sense. So we'll get to that. Uh, That's it for just me. And I will be joined right now by the Athletics' Tim Britton. I'm pleased to be joined by Tim Britton, who covers the Mets for The Athletic. He also co-hosts a podcast called The Metrospective alongside Ted Berg, which can be found on podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, The Athletic podcasts are not behind the paywall like the rest of uh, the athletic content. I'm I'm right in saying that, right, Tim? Yes, yeah, you're on top of it. All right. uh, I also just want to add, don't be afraid of that paywall. Uh, I was a latecomer to The Athletic, but I've been on board for about two years, and it is well, well worth it, especially the Mets coverage that you get from my guest, Tim Britton. Tim, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Michael. Thank you so much for the kind words already. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we get into actual Mets stuff, did I see that your new co-host got hit by a truck earlier this week? Yes, Ted is okay. Um, I, I saw the same thing you did on on Twitter that uh, we we recorded our first podcast on on Tuesday afternoon. It, it came out Wednesday morning, uh, and then Ted was was in a, a close call, I guess, with a New York City truck. Uh, I think it was Thursday morning, uh, but thankfully he is okay, and uh, we plan to, or at least I plan uh, to push him on the full story uh, of that uh, in our next <laughs> recording when, down the line. Well, I'm very excited to hear that, and I'm glad to hear that he's doing okay. Uh, uh, and one more thing, uh, just in all your times around ballparks, we're recording this on Friday. Uh, the news, big news today, the passing of Hank Aaron. I'm just curious if you ever had any, uh, the pleasure of being in his company, or uh, for that matter, uh, any of the other legends we lost in 2021 so far, like Don Sutton or Tommy Lasorda. You know, I haven't. I never got a chance to see Hank in person, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I know someone like Wayne Randazzo, the, the Mets radio broadcaster, was sharing a story uh, about uh, getting to hang out with Hank a little bit when he was a, a, a broadcaster down in Mobile, uh, the Bay Bears and down in Alabama, where, where Aaron is from. Um, you know, I, one of the first autographs I got as a kid was a Tom Seaver autograph. Uh, you know, Tom passing last September. Uh, I remember my dad was up in Cooperstown uh, the year Tom got inducted. So he was able to get that autograph for me when I was a kid. Uh, and that's one that we, we had on the mantle for a very long time. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, so now getting into the Mets, we're going to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we obviously have to start with the ugly with Jared Porter. I'm just curious, uh, as a reporter, when that story comes out late Monday night, what is what is your first move? Yeah, I mean that that story. I think it hit just after eleven o'clock on Monday night. 
you know, my, my first move is realizing I'm not going to be going to bed uh, <laughs> at, at the time that I planned to that night. Uh, you know, baseball reporters are generally generally late night people to begin with. So that, that probably helps in that regard. Um, but it's just kind of trying to figure out what the, the Mets are going to say. Well, first, first is reading the whole story and kind of getting a, a thought, wrapping your head around something like that, because that, you know, there are certain stories that you're kind of waiting to break, whether that's uh, signing a guy, trading for guys, stories that might catch you off guard. Like when the Mets, you know, traded for Francisco Lindor, I did not, you know, I thought that was a possibility, but I didn't expect it to happen uh, the way it did coming together as quickly as it did. And when it did in early January, uh, but then there are stories that really catch you uh, off guard. And, and certainly the one about Jared Porter was that type of story. Uh, so it's kind of reading the story, figuring out what this means, uh, hearing from the Mets in so much as you could at that point, you know, they, they basically forwarded the state that they had already sent to ESPN uh, on Monday night. And then just talking to a couple people around the sport to, to see if, if my basic conclusion off that story that Jared Porter could not really be retained as the general manager was the same that others were reaching, which it was. So, uh, you know, at by midnight that night, I basically had a story ready to go, for if and when they fired him. Uh, we had some shorter stuff on The Athletic at that time, uh, just talking about the story in, in general and, and what it said. Uh, but, you know, I was I was ready for the news that came on Tuesday morning. It came a little earlier than I expected. I think I rolled over in bed at a little after 8 a.m. just to see what was going on. Uh, and then I saw that, that Steve Cohen had already tweeted uh, that they were letting Jared go. Uh, so that that's when I, I got up, kind of polished off the, the story that I'd, I'd written the night before and, and had that up and, and ready to go. How do you feel that they handled it, just with everything from the having the statement in the story through to Sandy's press conference? Yeah, I, I think they handled it uh, reasonably well. You know, I, I think... The, the, the initial statement, it was a little confusing what, what Alderson mentioned in the, the press conference on Tuesday, whether that statement was uh, was written before or after they had really gotten the full breadth of the story uh, that ESPN had written. He, he mentioned being able to see the story a little bit uh, before it was published. But, you know, you're giving the statement in, in between that time. So I, I thought, you know, there were some people who thought that was a weak statement in the moment. Uh, I, I wouldn't have expected them to come out and say he's fired at. 11:10 when the story hits at 11:05, so I thought that the speed at which they moved, you know, that he was he was let go basically nine hours later, uh, was probably the right thing to happen. I think the bigger question in this, and one that that Alderson asked himself, was how what what should the Mets have known? Should they have known something like this was in his past? Uh, Alderson kind of concluded that it would be very difficult for them to know. Uh, and I know uh, it is hard to figure out exactly how the Mets could have known. Uh, you know, one very clear step is is more thorough vetting and maybe a, a vetting process that includes speaking to women. Uh, you know, he was asked that question, Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo, like, you know, in this thorough review process, did you speak to a woman about Jared Porter? And Alderson had to sheepishly admit, no, he hadn't. Uh, and so I, I think that's important. It's important to look at maybe not just talking to people who were Porter's bosses necessarily, uh, but people who had worked with and under him uh, to see kind of what, what the relationship was like uh, in those instances. Um, so I think those are steps forward, but uh, it's still difficult to know exactly. It's, it's hard for me to conclude one way or another what the Mets should have known, when they should have known it, 
uh, and what they should have act, been able to act upon before this whole story broke on Monday night. Uh, I'm curious because I know there's been a lot of talk about reporters and stories they know and, you know, this kind of thing developing. Uh, Jeff Passan has said that he did not know this story up until, I think, about the weekend, just a couple of days before it came out. But I'm just curious, like, if, if you had known a, a story of this magnitude and you knew that a team was looking to hire a guy like this, do you feel there's any responsibility to maybe give a heads up or, you know, especially a situation like this where it's a guy who clearly doesn't deserve the opportunity? Do you feel there's any responsibility to that end? You know, I, I think journalistically, like I've seen people criticize ESPN for holding the story that you know, the other reporter on that story, Mina Kimes, has said, she, you know, she's the one who knew about it initially, uh, has known about it for a few years now, I think going back to, to 2017 or so, uh, that, you know, why, why would ESPN sit on this story in the, the time since then while Porter... Uh, you know, got another job in Arizona, was, was up for uh, other general manager positions, you know, that why did they wait? Uh, and, and so much of that is uh, it, it comes down to how the, the female journalist at the center of the story uh, and the victim of Porter's harassment, how she feels, because she's the one who didn't want that story out there in 2017 because of, of what it might mean for her career. Uh, and, and that's it was only basically when Porter became the general manager uh, of another team and got kind of more power under him uh, that she felt comfortable coming out with this story. I think that speaks to the power dynamic at play here. And I, I don't think it's up to necessarily the individual uh, journalist reporting the story. So in this case, Mina Kimes and Jeff Passan to throw this story out there without the the victim of the harassment feeling comfortable with that. It, it wasn't their story to tell necessarily in late 2017 or, or early 2018 or something like that. So I think, you know, in, in your hypothetical, I'd, I'd have to have basically the, the cooperation and the will on behalf of the, the person who's experienced harassment uh, to feel good or uh, really in a position to, to say something uh, about a candidate like that. Uh, the the other aspect, looking at it, I know Jeff has had to answer for the fact that when the Mets hired Jared Porter, he tweeted that it was a good hire. In this world where, you know, reporters are counted on so much to tweet when news happens, to write when news happens, is there any, do you guys have fear that something like this could happen? I mean, I think when you cover the sport long enough, you realize uh, how much you see of individuals uh, and, and well, I, I should say how little of, of that you actually see of individuals, and how little you get to know them. I mean, someone like like Jeff, who, who's been covering baseball longer than I have uh, and at a much higher level than I have, probably has more inside access uh, to, to people than I do. But, you know, there have been instances where I've covered players and I've, I've thought that they were, you know, really, you know, the type of person I would say, oh, that's a good guy. That's a nice guy. I like that guy. Uh, and then you hear a uh, domestic violence allegation, for instance, against them or something like that. Uh, and you, you get a sense of, you know, I don't really know that guy. I'm not in a, I see him in a workplace environment for an hour a day, maybe. Uh, that's not really enough for me to, to accurately gauge whether he's a good guy or not. Uh, I think, you know, you, you rely on the, your, your sources uh, in the game uh, who you would think have a better sense of, of the quality of character of individuals. Uh, but, you know, there are people that I reached out to about Jared Porter guys, uh, you know, people in the sport that I've known for a while uh, and have worked with him uh, for a while. And they all thought it was a great hire for the Mets. 
so I, you know, one of the interesting things will be to see um, how those people feel about it moving forward. Uh, people who, you know, because Porter had worked in three pretty successful organizations in Boston, Chicago, and Arizona. You know, what uh, responsibility do those people feel they they have in this, uh, or how blind were? Uh, his co-workers uh, and, and people who were his references uh, to, to this type of behavior. Now that uh, we got that out of the way, let's get to more on the field stuff. George Springer signs with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, so, so far, and it looks like it is going to stay this way, the Mets don't end up signing any of the top free agents. That's a bit of a surprise, I would say, to most people. They did trade for Francisco Lindor. Do you feel that there might be any sort of responsibility to extend Lindor or extend Conforto right now to still make that big splash that so many people were anticipating? You know, I, I well, I think it's a surprise they didn't sign. They they haven't, and it doesn't look like they will sign any of those top three free agents: the Real Muto, Springer, Bauer class. Uh, I don't think it you can really paint the off season as a disappointment given that Lindor is probably a better investment than any of the three of them would have been. He costs a little bit more in terms of trade capital and he'll, he'll cost a bit more than, than any of them if you sign him to an extension. Uh, but I think that's probably the biggest impact acquisition that the Mets could have potentially made this winter. And they made that one. So I, I don't feel like uh, for a fan base that, that has been, you know, so uh, eager for an off season where they are the center of the sport, uh, I, I don't feel like it's it's proper necessarily for them to feel disappointed at this point uh, because you've only gotten Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. Um, I, I don't think in terms of signing, extending Lindor or extending Conforto, I don't think you do that based off of the timing of, of when the news would hit. You know, I think those are longer conversations that have to happen. A lot of times you see those types of contracts uh, come out at the end of spring training. You know, spring training is is often when a lot of that negotiation takes place. We saw it with the Mets just a couple of years ago with Jacob deGrom, that that you know, extension was announced, I think, the day before opening day or something like that in Washington. So, you know, I, I wouldn't expect, you know, in the next two or three weeks to be hearing about uh, uh, an official extension for a Conforto or a, a Lindor. But I do think those are uh top priorities for the Mets moving into the, re you know, through the rest of this offseason and into spring training uh, to try to get something done before uh, the start of the regular season or very early on in the regular season. And now that we've got Springer signed in Toronto, uh, that gives Conforto, you know, I think that was a domino to fall for Conforto to see where he fits in the outfield market because that was the big outfielder out there. Uh, that was someone that, that Conforto could compare himself to conceivably uh, and to look at as, as kind of a standard bearer in the outfield market after the 2020 season uh, to kind of peg his value to moving forward. Yeah, I certainly do not want to paint this offseason as a disappointment. It certainly has not been. Uh, just it, it just it felt like at the beginning that they were they were going to sign one, if not two of those top three guys. And I, I got to admit, I, I liked how they were aggressive in signing James McCann. And uh, one thing I've noticed watching some of these Zoom conferences that I know you've been a part of with McCann, Lindor, Carrasco, even Trevor May, they all seem, you know, this team has had a, a fun personality to it for the past couple of years. And all of those guys seem like they're going to fit right in with that. Yeah, the, the Mets have built 
what you know it again it's hard for me to say as a reporter especially after a 2020 season when i was not in the clubhouse at all uh but certainly the end of the 2019 season uh and and from what we have talked to players about it seems as if the mets have built a good clubhouse culture you think you talk about that that homegrown core that they've got of young players the with pete alonzo and and Jeff McNeil and Conforto and Brandon Nimmo and Dominic Smith. J.D. Davis isn't necessarily homegrown, but but he comes in and joins that group. That uh, those guys do seem to really get along in there. Uh, Lindor and Carrasco uh, come very highly recommended from people in Cleveland for fitting into a clubhouse and, and being uh, stand-up members of a, of a team to the media. Uh, Lindor, you know, was kind of the, the guy in Cleveland in the way that David Wright had been uh, in Queens for so long. Uh, so I, I think from everything that I've heard about those guys, uh, that they do seem like they would fit the culture the Mets are trying to build. Uh, and that is uh, something that they've parked on uh, this offseason is trying to change kind of the culture about how this team operates from from the Wilpon ownership group to Steve Cohen. You said uh, earlier that the the way the Lindor trade came together, it was a bit of a surprise uh, and I think the biggest part of that was that Carlos Carrasco came along with him. Where where does that leave Seth Lugo? Yeah, so they're in an interesting spot with Lugo. You know, you, you look at that starting rotation right now, and it, it's DeGrom, Stroman, Carrasco. Then you've got David Peterson, Stephen Matz, Seth Lugo, probably for two spots. Although, you know, one of the hard things to project going into 2021 is how many innings can any of these pitchers throw off of a year in which they did not throw that many innings? Uh, and I think in particular for a guy like Peterson, whose career high in innings is something like 130, uh, to come off a year where he threw about 50, uh, to then expect him to be, you know, a, a regular every fifth day kind of starter for 160 plus innings might be a bit too much to ask. And I think Lugo uh, would be an interesting option, even if he's not a member of the rotation, as a guy who is not your traditional reliever, but kind of eats more innings that way. Uh, I think they've, they've bolstered the back end of their bullpen a bit, uh, certainly with May, uh, and, and we've heard about the possibility of Brad Hand joining them. I've, I've said from the start of the offseason I'd be surprised uh, if Hand signed with the Mets. Uh, it seemed as if he was very close to signing with the Mets uh, last week, and, and we still haven't heard finality on that. But certainly if you add him to it as well, uh, then, then you've got a back end of the bullpen that you can spare Seth Lugo. Seth Lugo doesn't have to be your closer or your eighth inning guy. You can use him kind of more uniquely than they have been able to the last couple of years. But I think they're trying to build their team so that Lugo can go either way and fit in where he fits best. Um, and I, I think that might be as kind of a an innings eater, uh, maybe a spot starter, uh, a role that doesn't seem sexy when you talk about it that way, but can be really it can be important in any year, but might be even more vital than ever next year. I think I think they need Brad Hand. Right now, just looking at this bullpen, I don't think it's good enough to you know when you compare it to, especially the Dodgers. But they also just don't have a lefty right now. I, I don't know wh- where they're looking to try to find that other than Brad Hand. If it's not Brad Hand. You, you- you know, there's not a lot of other options out there. Justin Wilson is, is still there. Uh, and, you know, he was decent for the Mets the last two seasons. Uh, if he could fit in kind of the same role that, that he had, uh, that might be another option. But I, I think, yeah, if you go too far beyond those two guys, then you start thinking about uh, you might need Seth Lugo more in the seventh and eighth inning than, than you would like to. 
And what about uh, Noah Syndergaard? Because you, you mentioned that there's two spots left after the three locks. Uh, when when can the Mets, or when do the Mets, as of now, expect Syndergaard to be back? And what can they expect from him? Yeah, they, they've said June is kind of the, the target month. Uh, you know, with, with Tommy John surgery, I think for a little while we got used to 12 months as a hard timetable. Guys were usually back within 12 months. Uh, in the last few years, we've seen the guys who've really had more successful returns from Tommy, sur- Tommy John surgery have been the guys who've taken a little bit longer. Uh, you think about guys taking maybe the, the full 18 months where you have it at the end of the season uh, and you come back a year and a half after that. Those t- seem to be the guys who have done the best. Cinderella doesn't have that luxury if he wants to be back in 2021 to take the full 18. But I think you know his surgery was the end of March. I think that makes it a stretch to be there for opening day. I don't think you'd want to push him to be there for opening day. And again, the innings thing comes in with him too. You don't want him to be in, I think an every fifth day guy for six months off of surgery that way. So I think slow playing that into June or July, you know, the all-star break has been my kind of uh, before or after date for him since he had the surgery Uh, that, that I think makes the most sense. And that gives you a chance, you know, you can see what you've got in Peterson and Mats and Lugo, if you put him in the rotation, uh, in Joey Lucchesi, uh, who I forgot to mention earlier, uh, as another option there toward the back end of the rotation. They built up a little bit of depth there. You can see what you have there. Uh, and then when, when you're bringing Syndergaard back, uh, you can decide who he's replacing uh, and, and how, you know, who needs a break at that point in time. We've seen a team like the Dodgers use it's not a, a six man rotation per se. Uh, they've, they've had kind of a, a way of getting around that to give guys enough rest during the course of the season so that they stay fresh throughout the whole thing. And I think that would, an approach like that would help the Mets if, you know, into September and hopefully for this team, October. It's a funny thing with, with Syndergaard because he scares me a little bit because he works so hard. We saw that beat to his detriment a couple of years ago when he came in just in tremendous shape but it wound up wearing him out after a month and uh, i'm curious to see how his body responds to we see on social media all the videos he posts of his different workouts thrown off the mound he seems determined to be back as soon as possible as soon as the mets will let him back yeah and and you know there are so many instances uh in baseball where you hear a guy retroactively say you know, in retrospect, I probably I probably came back a little too fast. Uh, and you almost never hear a guy say, in retrospect, I shouldn't have taken as long as I did to get back. Uh, you know, you think of, of Conforto in, in 2018, coming back from that shoulder injury and getting back, I think, the second week of the season when most people expected him out until May. Uh, and that, that kind of threw him off for the entire season. That's not, you know, certainly with Syndergaard, you don't want something like that to happen where he's rushing himself to get back by a, a specific date, even if it's just one he's set in his own mind uh, and compromises uh, his health moving forward or just, you know, his mechanics and his ability to be the pitcher he can be uh, through the whole 21 season. Do you think there's going to be a, a DH just from the the leaves, how, how they're playing out across these negotiations between the league and the players union? You know, I'm, I'm surprised we still don't know at this point in, in getting to late January. Uh, I do think there will be just because both sides deep down want it. Like the, the owners 
want the the universal DH. The players want the universal DH. It's really just a, a matter of deciding what it's going to cost in terms of, of bargaining. You know, the owners want the expanded playoffs in exchange for a universal DH. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know how firm players will hold on that, uh, whether they can can bargain it for just the 21 season or whether it becomes a more permanent thing. You know, I, I think it's it's an, it's a complicated and interesting bar- negotiating dynamic between the two sides because you've got the CBA up at the end of the year. You've got kind of this uh, this distrust that exists between them that's as as high as it's been probably since the strike in 94. Uh, and then you've got uh, a whole issue of how many games, you know, players want to play this year versus what owners want to play. Players want to play as many as possible to get paid as much as possible. And owners probably want to play the largest percentage of games in front of fans as they can uh, as a vaccine rolls out. So there are a lot of complicated things here. And it's probably not a great sign for the negotiating that something as relatively simple as uh, a nationally designated hitter uh, hasn't been resolved to this point. Is Pete Alonso going to be annoyed if he ends up being the DH most of the time? I don't think that would be ideal in Pete's mind because he's worked so hard uh, on his his defense at first base and has made pretty significant improvements in that regard since he was first drafted out of the University of Florida. But if, if it allows him to, to be in the lineup on an everyday basis and, and hit 40 to 50 home runs and, and prolong his career, maybe we've seen some guys uh, who are in the Pete Alonso mold as players uh, play into their late 30s and 40s, very productive players uh, that, that might be better off for him in the long run uh, than, than playing the field every day. Is that is, is that the best scenario for the Mets? Uh, Alonzo at fir- Alonzo DHing Dom Smith at first and a, a defensive center fielder with Nemo and Conforto in the corner spots. Yeah, I, I think that's the alignment that makes the most sense given the roster they have. Alderson has said a few times that he he doesn't really love the idea of Dominic Smith in left field, and he, even as Smith has he's made improvement there, but he's clearly not. Uh, I don't I don't think he's even an average left fielder at this point. Uh, Nimmo in center is probably not an average center fielder at this point. So if you can bump Nimmo to left where he'd be at least an average fielder, if not a little above average and get a, a plus defensive center fielder with Smith as a plus defensive first baseman, you look around your your defensive configuration and you start to see positive defenders rather than than league average or below average guys like the Mets have had for several years. So I think that's that's probably the easiest way for them to be a, the best offensive team they can be with both Smith and Alonzo in the lineup and be the best defensive team they can be uh, with, with a, a more premium defender at a premium spot in center. Tim Britton, you can check him out on the athletic and on the Metrospective podcast. Tim, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. It was a lot of fun. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much. Once again, to Tim Brenton. Again, you can find him on The Athletic. That is behind a paywall, but again, I will vouch for it. It's very worthy content, both from Tim and anybody else that you might find on The Athletic. Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark covering baseball as a whole, and many more as well. Lindsay Adler covers the Yankees. I think she's tremendous as well. Nicole Auerbach covering college football is great. Uh, There's just so many great writers on The Athletic and I think it's well worth the money that you would pay each month to get it. But if you just want to hear Tim and his co-host, the recently run over Ted Berg, discuss Mets baseball, 
They will be doing that on the Metrospective. It is part of the Athletic Podcast Network, but you can find that not beyond the paywall on podcasting platforms such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify, much like you find this one. If you want to join the conversation here at Fun and Flushing, leave me a voicemail at 845-206-9098, or you can leave me an email at funtimesinflushing at gmail.com. Let me know anything you want to talk about revolving around this team. There's a lot to discuss. You heard a bunch of it with Tim. So please let me know what you're thinking. I want to hear it. Uh, you can find all that information at funandflushing.com slash 20. There are plenty of links there to different podcasting platforms. Feel free to go there, subscribe, rate, review the show. You can follow me on Twitter at msmith, F-I-F for fun in flushing. Or you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at funandflushing. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Tim Britton, and I will talk to you guys next week.